Good morning, Redeemer. I'd like to read this passage that we're going to look at today. I can't do all of chapter 21 and 22. I just want to look at the first verses of chapter 22, 1 through 18. We will uh, refer back to 21, obviously. In fact, we'll refer back to a number of other passages. But let me just read the text, and then I'll give a little context for where we're going. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they had come to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called, on the, on the na- called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Well, we've been 
taking a great look at Abraham in the book of Genesis, but Abraham particularly over the last number of weeks. Three particular chapters that are important to remember. Chapter 12, where the call came to Abraham. The call came for him to obey God and move out of his land, the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and move to the place where God would show him. And God promised that he would make a great nation of him. Then in chapter 15, Abraham complains that he has no heir as was promised. And God comes to him again in covenant and promises him again that he would be made into a great nation. One of the most important verses to have circled and underlined in your Bible is Genesis 15, verse 6. And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Long years passed. More wonderment about what would happen as Sarah grows older. And then in 21, chapter 21, the promised son is born, Isaac. So we start off in verses 1 and 2 here where it says, after these things. Those are the things that's being referred to in this chapter. In chapters 1 and 2, we have this command. It is a horrible command. Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, And go to the mountain that I will show you and sacrifice him. It's difficult for us to imagine, isn't it, what that command would be like. What was on the mind of Abraham. In one sense, this makes no sense. This is the child that was promised. The child of promise through which all the blessings of God would flow. And make no mistake, God understands how important this child is to Abraham. God repeats over and over again in this passage, your son, your only son. It's repeated over and again, the son whom you love. Make no mistake, in this first two verses, God knows how important this child is. It's so illogical. Why would God call Abraham to sacrifice the son through which the promise was to flow out? I, um, I have an Isaac. My son, my youngest son is Isaac. And he's a joy to me. What anguish would it be to be called to sacrifice? My Isaac, his very name, laughter, is a mark on him. It's true about him. He's a joy to me. What anguish. But notice in verses 3 and 4, notice the response of Abraham. He does not hesitate. Early the next morning, he gathers up the servants. He gathers up the donkeys. He pulls Isaac in. He chops the wood. They set off on a three-day journey. No hesitation. 
Remember, this is in some ways hearkening back to Genesis 12. God called Abraham. Perhaps it was somewhat familiar territory. He calls him to go someplace. He'll show him later. Just like in Genesis 12, except in Genesis 12, there was a promise to become a great nation. Here, in Genesis 22, there is this command to go to this mountain that God will show him to slaughter his son. I wonder what that journey was like those three days. What was it like as Abraham pondered that mountain? That's pretty good for a moon worshiper. Remember, Abraham was a pagan moon worshiper. Never been to church. Never had an accountability partner. Never sung a hymn by Geddes. He had not sat under preaching. In fact, as far as we could tell, he's the only one who really understood God. The only one. What amazing faith. And look at verse 5. It's not just in his response in verses 3 and 4, but it's in verse 5. When they finally get to the mountain... He says to the young men who are attendants, you take care of the donkeys, you stay here, we're going to go up on the mountain and worship. The first instance in the Bible of that word, worship, and return to you. There's this hope. There's this hope inside of Abraham, hope against hope, that the boy would come back alive. The writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 verse 19 says that he so hoped against hope that he believed though he slayed his son, God would raise him from the dead. The writer writer of the Hebrews goes on to say, and in effect that's what happened. In a sense, that's what happened with Isaac. In verses 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10, these next Paragraphs, these next verses, they start up the mountain, Mount Moriah. And there is images of, as they walk of the, of the crucifixion, the sacrifice, right? Do you see it? As they walk up this hill, up Mount Moriah, who knows what is on Abraham's mind except God will provide the father and the son are on their way to a sacrifice the wood of the sacrifice is placed on the back of Isaac doesn't that doesn't that remind you of the the walk to Golgotha to Calvary when the cross of wood was placed on the back of Jesus Young Isaac, obviously old enough to think and talk, says, Father, the sacrifice is here, but what about the lamb? Where is the lamb? His questions remind me of questions of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. God will provide. God will provide a sacrifice. Now, there's no way for 
Abraham or Isaac, of course, to know this. This mountain, not much is there at this time, but Mount Moriah became the very place where Solomon in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, sets the altar of God and builds the temple. That's this mountain. Abraham doesn't know that. It's just a little little dusty outpost. If there's anything on there at all, it's just a little fort manned by some king named Melchizedek. Who knows who that was? We don't know that much about him. Eventually, on top of that mountain, there would form the city, Jerusalem. But there's nothing there at this point. Listen. If you've ever had questions about God's sovereignty, if you've had any questions about whether or not God orders history, time, and space, look at what happens here, how God orders the very thing that He is projecting out into the future. There's these images mixed together here that God has put together at this place because of what He will do for His Son one day, 3,000 years later. It's important to understand how radical this is. So, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter tells us that when the ancients wrote these things down, when they, when they were describing these events, they understood that it was really important They understood that these passages of Scripture that we're looking at today were really important, but they couldn't figure them out. They had no way to understand. And Peter says they understood that they were writing these Scriptures for us. It's for us to see because, you see, you and I are at the end of time. We're at the very end of it. And we're moving on day by day at the end of time. So we get to see what God was doing. Look at verses 11 and 12. Of course, what happens here? Of course, the image of the crucifixion is the knife is raised. It's raised over Isaac on the altar. His back is on the wood. But the angel cries out, Abraham! Abraham! There's a sense that Abraham is getting ready to plunge the knife. There's a a sense... That the angel must speak boldly to stop Abraham from slaughtering his son Isaac. A couple things happen there that's important. One is, though all the Canaanite religions all around Abraham and for years to come would sacrifice their children, God is making sure to everyone understands, but especially Abraham. I'm not that God. I am not that God. I do not call parents to slaughter their children for atonement. It's a clear statement. In fact, in some ways, I think that the idea of Abraham being called to sacrifice Isaac is probably a little harsher to our ears than it was to Abraham's. Many gods called people to slaughter their kids during those days. The other thing that happens is, obviously, Abraham passes the test. His faith is found to be sure. 
Now, let me, let me say, a lot of sermons on this passage of Scripture stop right there, verse 12. For some reason, many people stop there. Maybe it's just because, you know, for, for preachers, it's kind of a good place to stop, you know. Uh, good things have happened. It's kind of a crescendo. God stops this slaughter. People are relieved. But if you miss verses 13 and 14, if you don't go on, you cut the heart out of the Christian faith. If you don't, if you don't get verses 13 and 14, you don't really understand what Christianity is all about. Because it's not just God stopping the knife. It's that there is this substitute, this ram caught in the thicket. Sacrifices woven throughout the scriptures. Sacrifices everywhere in the Bible. It's here in Genesis 22. It's, it's later in Exodus chapter 12 with the Passover where the blood of the lamb is put on the doorposts of the home to protect people from the death angel. We see it in the law. Constant references to atonement and sacrifice throughout the law until one day when Christ appeared John the Baptist saw him and said, There goes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everyone knew what he was talking about. Everyone. Although there's this funny little upsetness that happened on the part of the rulers and the Pharisees and others. How could it be human sacrifice? I mean, didn't Abraham stop that so long ago? Now you see, sacrifice is required. It's just one person being sacrificed for another is not good enough. The fact of the matter is our sin is too great to be redeemed by another person. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. That is Jesus. The perfect sacrifice. He lived a perfect life. He was fully God and fully man. So we come into an understanding of the gospel. Understand, this is, this is Genesis 22. This is only the first pages into the book of the Bible. And yet we have this clear understanding of what the Christian faith is all about. Which is, it's not about working your way to God. Abraham was credited as righteous... In chapter 15, when he believed God, and God credited it to his account. Now you see, what's going on here is that test, the testing of his faith. Abraham passed the test. I think uh, sometimes we've heard that sermon that ends in chapter 12 like this. Abraham was a man of faith. You be a person of faith. Um, Abraham gave up everything he had. You give up everything you had. You know, you do that, right? A lot of people preach that away. And that's not terrible. I mean, we're, we're encouraged to make sure that we see the people of faith and respond to their patterns of life. But you see, it's not the ultimate thing that God wants to communicate in this passage. If you only look at 
at verse 12 and don't go to verse 13 and preach on it, what you end up with is moralism. Be good, be better, work hard. In fact, this passage has often been co-opted by prosperity preachers. Have more faith and you'll get what you want. Look at Abraham. No, that's, that's not what's going on here. What, what, what we do in mistake, I think, is sometimes put ourselves in the place of the heroes in the Bible. <laughs> Does that make sense? That we, we, we see ourselves in Abraham's shoes. But I promise you, you're not, you're not Abraham, number one. Because I've watched you. And I'm not Abraham. And furthermore, that's not the image of the story. In the story, you see, Abraham is an image of God the Father. And if we are anyone in this story, we're Isaac. We're, we're bound in sin. We're on the altar of God. The wrath of God hangs over us like a knife justly. All of us are worthy of death. No one is without sin. All have been an affront to a holy God. And God is in His perfect right to slay us. Our only hope is that ram caught in the thicket that becomes a substitute, the image of Christ. The ram is the image of Christ that was slain for you and me. And that's the gospel. It is so important for you to understand Genesis 22. In some ways, you can't really even understand the New Testament unless you understand the Old. But this is the first foundation for that idea that one day everyone would be saved by faith, chapter 15, because of the substitute that was given for us in our place. I have um, four applications I'd like to make from this passage of Scripture. Number one, testing will come. I know you, many of you are here for the student conference this weekend. I'm looking forward to being with you. If someone had come to me when I was your age and told me how hard life was going to be, <laughs> I would not have any category for believing it. I just, I just wouldn't have believed it. I don't know how else to say that. Maybe you could be smarter than me. Maybe you should know. I should warn you. We should warn all of you. Testing will come. These trials that come to us, these hard times that come to us, refine our faith and they come from the hand of God. Just like it did for Abraham. We're not above Abraham, do you think, right? Bill Hybels, I, I think, wrote a book called Who You Are When No One's Looking. That's a book about temptation. Um, and it's a good book. Testing is not temptation. Testing is very different. It comes from God. God does not tempt us. The book of James makes that clear. 
But testing is different. Those trials that come to us from the hand of God refine our faith. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says, God tests our hearts. He refines our hearts according to 1 Peter in chapter 4. God tests us. So if the book was written, kind of parallel book, written to the book on who you are when no one's looking on temptation, the parallel book would be who you are when trials and temptations come to your life. Cancer. A marriage that just didn't work out. Not getting into that university that you thought was your path to success. A wayward child. Dying parents. Those things refine us and we should be ready for them. Secondly, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. You know, I think it's easy to give lip service for how devoted we are to God on Friday morning, but then wake up on Sunday morning for work and forget all about it. We act like we're in charge. We act like God is not in charge and is not sovereign. You've got a choice, Christian. You have a choice to live as orphans in the world or to live as adopted children. Glenn was exactly right. God has adopted us and sat us at his table. And we can live life in one of those two ways. Orphans have to take care of themselves. So they've got to worry about things. They've got to make sure that everything's right for them. They have to do things their way. They have to get other people to do things their way. There's a lack of trust in the sovereignty of God. He's working out His plans in your life, even through the hard things, even through the testings. Adopted children rest in God. Adopted children know God the Father is a good Father and He's going to take care of us. Live like adopted children. Thirdly, Be constantly amazed with the gospel. God has provided a substitute for you on the cross while you were still a rebel lost in sin. That's amazing. And if it doesn't warm your heart, if it doesn't grab you, then there's maybe something wrong with your heart. It might be an indication a little litmus test that you're not really a believer. If you you don't gravitate towards the gospel, if you don't love what God has done for us in Christ on the cross of Calvary, then there's a good chance you might be following Christianity for other reasons. There's a lot of reasons to follow Christianity. It's good moral principles. I've known many people over the year who've find business contacts in a large gathering. There's others who show up because it's comfortable and they were raised that way. You've got to love the gospel. You've got to know it. You've got to speak it. You've got to live it. 
be amazed with the gospel. One of the things that's most amazing about the gospel is God did not stop the knife on Calvary's hill. You know that that anguish that Abraham was bound to feel as he walked up that mountain with Isaac? I've often wondered, I'm just speculating here, but I've often wondered, is that not part of the reason why God would call Abraham his friend? That identification that Abraham in knowing what a little bit of what it was like to lose a child? I was on the train from Budapest to Amsterdam. We had gone through the Alps somewhere in Austria and suddenly our one-year-old son had an asthma attack. It was horrific. We were young parents. We didn't know what to do. I remember the wild taxi ride from the train in Zurich to the Kinderspittel, a great children's hospital. And as our one-year-old son turned blue, I was praying, oh God, oh God, save my little boy. And you know what I was comforted by in the midst of all that? God knows what it's like to lose a son. He knows what it's like. You think God wasn't anguished? He felt more anguish than we would ever know in the loss of Christ on that hill. And yet he did it for us. Tristan, our youngest son, is alive today by God's grace. And so is Christ, the resurrected Lord. And that's great news. That is great news for us. Because we can be a blessing, right? We can be a blessing. You know, the last uh, four verses from, um, you know, 16, 17, or, or what is it? 15, 16, 17, 18, those last four verses where God reaffirms the covenant, where God states to Abraham, I swear by myself that you will be made a great nation and you will bless all nations. <laughs> you see, what he's talking about is not physical descendants. He's talking about the spiritual heirs of Abraham's faith. And you know what that looks like, that, that, that blessing of all nations. I see it better than you. I see it right now. It's called Redeemer Church at Dubai, where God has gathered all nations. I look out and I see you and I'm amazed at what God has done. It's not the physical descendants of Abraham. It's the spiritual heirs those who have been adopted as his children through faith in the work of Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection that approved and proved him to be the true and living Lord. And we are here to bless 
The blessing continues through you, through us, as we gather together in Christ to proclaim this incredible good news. So last point of application, share your faith. Share your faith. You can be a blessing. I want to encourage you to share your faith with people that don't look like you. That's pretty easy in Dubai. Be bold. Tell people you're a Christian if you haven't at your workplace. Let them know. Invite them to church. Be so bold and clear as to say, if there's any interest at all, I'd love to read the scriptures with you. And listen, if you're checking out, if you're here with us right now and you're checking out Christianity, you come from another faith background or you... You're just you're exploring what Christian faith is about. You are so welcome. You are welcome here. But don't wait till your friend that you came with asks you to read the Bible with them. Go ahead and help them out. Ask them to read the Bible through with you. To see more about what Christianity is about. They would love to do that with you. And keep coming back. We're going to keep talking about this stuff. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you have gathered us from among the nations. Thank you, Lord God, that you have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every treasure in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that you have given us this glorious gospel. We thank you for the love that is in full evidence on the cross, though the anguish that that was to you and the pain it was to you, our Lord Jesus. We are so grateful. We would pray, Father, that you would make us pleasing in your sight as the redeemed people of the Lord come together and worship you. And the nations, the nations would know of this great and glorious gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.